0: I feel I should let listeners know that this episode of Think Again is about surviving and thriving in the face of unspeakable trauma and sexual violence. And that in order to get to the thriving part, we have to talk about the trauma part, which may be painful for some listeners and not appropriate for children. But I don't want to scare anybody off. I think it's one of the most valuable conversations we've ever had on the show. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think Podcast. (coughs) For a human child growing up, trust is the foundation of everything. We learn how to regulate our emotions, how to see the world as relatively stable and safe through the connection with the people who care for us. Severely neglected children can suffer all kinds of harm to their ability to think, connect with others, and learn. But what happens when the caring bond is not only missing, but is horribly abused, distorted through incest and sexual violence? How do you build a self and a life after that? And let's say you somehow manage to survive to adulthood, to thrive even. How do you fill the place in your heart where the love and the trust is supposed to be? My guest today has had to answer all of these questions for herself. She is the playwright, author, and activist Eve Ensler. You may know her as the creator of the Vagina Monologues. What you might not know is that all the horrors I'm talking about happened to her as a kid. Let me take that out of the passive voice. Her father did that to her and more and he died without saying anything remotely close time sorry so eve wrote his apology for him or for herself her book the apology is a letter to her to eve ensler in the imagined voice of her dead father retelling what happened why it happened and trying to figure out in these twisted circumstances what an apology would even mean welcome to think again eve
1: thank you happy to be here
0: First of all, you had to sit there and listen to me say all of that. Is there anywhere that you'd want to push back, clarify, or take it in a different direction? or
1: No, I think it was very accurate. I think that question about how do you develop trust and how do you love after you've been abused is, a, is an essential question, I think one that many, many people are grappling with.
0: It sounds like for you, there was... First of all, it sounds like you just... I don't know if lucky is the right word, but that you're somehow maybe lucky enough to have an intensity of life force in you that just caused you to push through this in ways in the beginning that were sometimes unhelpful or or backfiring, but you were a survivor, yeah? Mm -hmm.
1: And I think I was also really defiant. I think my rage kind of formed itself into a defiance early on. I, I, I witnessed what my father's terror and what his abuse was kind of doing to the community of my family. And I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be shut down. I didn't want to be silent. I didn't want to be swept over in the tsunami of his cruelty. You know. So I think there was some part of me that was born saying, "No, no, no, you don't get to do that." And who knows why. But I'm grateful for it.
0: And yet, you somehow went through that whole like you were at home until what? What age did you finally kind of like? Leave? Well, I began
1: to leave at sixteen, and then I fully left at eighteen.
0: And like during that whole time, you in spite of the defiance, in spite of your kind of not taking it in that sense, you did manage to remain silent on the fact of what had happened
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, who was I going to tell? Who were children going to tell? I mean, you know, when you're five years old, first of all, you don't have the language and you wouldn't even understand what it was. And then I think there was this kind of Understanding, I think unconsciously on my mother's part that something really inappropriate was going on, even though it was never stated, which is why I think me really withdrawing from my father in a very obvious way, and my mother, I think, getting wind of stuff, my father began to stop the sexual abuse, but that's when the physical abuse began, which was in some ways more harrowing because it was like every day of my life, I knew my father could throw me against a wall, beat me, scream at me, do, you know, whip me, do whatever you wanted to do. So I think we find all the different ways we can to survive, right? I right. mean, one of them was that I just wrote and wrote and wrote in journals and wrote to myself and created another alternative universe that I lived in. And another one was that I just... I would. I remember I would go in the mirror when my father would call me down for the punishment. And I would just say to myself, you will go away now. You will not feel what is going to happen. You will not cry. You will not, you know, and I would separate from my body. I would separate from myself so I wouldn't have to feel what was about to happen. And sometimes it was very successful and sometimes it wasn't.
0: And that, that enables you to survive through that. But at some point in order to become, you know, a whole person to the extent that such a thing exists, you then have to like go back into there, go back into those places where you dissociated.
1: And I think going back is a journey. It takes years and years to inch your way back to the center of the wound. I mean, this book, The Apology, I feel like I went into the heart of the wound. And what I learned is there's a portal there. And when you go into the heart of the wound, you can actually get to the other side. It's when you kind of park your bicycle at the door of the wound. Right. Like you just remain in constant suffering. You've got to go through it. And it seems counterintuitive. But in fact, I think pain sometimes is like a river, Mm, right? And if you avoid the river, if you just sit on the side of the river you will just be in the pain but if you get in the river it will take you to another shore and this book was really that it was like okay we're go- I'm going in i i want to i want to know first of all i want an apology right. i want my father to say the things to me he has never said and never said in life i want to know what that feels like i, I want to know what the anatomy of an apology is and what what the the feeling of it would be and what what are the the tenets of it what are the things that make up an apology And it was an incredible exercise or an incredible experience because I began to really learn things about my father. I mean, it's an imaginative exercise. I conjured a lot of it. I don't know if a lot of the stuff I wrote about my father is true. I know the stuff that happened between us is based on reality. Sure. But I learned so much about my father. And I think so often survivors of any form of violence are just haunted by the why, why would my best friend date rape, you know, drug me and date rape me? Why would my father want to destroy his daughter? Why? Why? And I think when you begin to go into the perpetrator and you begin to go into the mind and the history and the story, you begin to see, oh, this led to this and this led to this and this is how he got to be a man who could be that sadistic and that cruel. you know. And that's not to justify it, but explanation sure. is different, I think, than justification.
0: Is it totally out of this world, to think of that as some kind of, I I almost hesitate to say it, act of compassion?
1: Oh, I think, I think, look, if you had asked me to write this book like five years ago, I don't even know if I was ready to hear my father apologize or hear anything about my father's pain or suffering or brokenness. And going through this and having to feel what lived inside my father was so painful. It was so painful because in some ways I would have preferred for a long time to have my father remain this monolithic monster, but that kept me in the vice of being a victim to his monolithic monster. Right. Going through this process, he suddenly went from that to becoming this broken, vulnerable, um, non-threatening boy. And I became, I had much more agency right? Over my right, own life right. in writing this, because I was the I was the author of it.
0: What's so difficult, I guess, with trauma is that it's, I mean, there are probably psychologically predictable stages, but that depending on the circumstances and the force, everyone goes on their own, has to go on their own trajectory of, of coming to terms with it or working with it or whatever they're going to do. And so I can fully understand why some people at some stage of this kind of, you know, having experienced this kind of trauma might be like, you know, fuck that. I don't don't, want to, you know, I don't want to, whereas I can also completely see why, how you might have arrived at this point.
1: And I want to say this book is an offering. It's not a prescription. You know what I mean? Like I trust survivors know exactly what they need when they need it. And I would never tell anyone to do anything. I have been through every form of trying to get out of what Sylvia Plath once referred to as that bell jar, you know, mm. trying to find my way to light right, and from body work to therapy to ranting to writing <laughs> to activism, and this really came to me. Thinking about where we are in years and years of working in the anti-violence movement against all women and then the recent iteration of the Me Too movement, we have called out men. We have told our stories. We have broken the silence. And yet I started to think to myself, have I ever heard a man make a public thorough apology indicating he had done profound self-interrogation, work on himself, investigated his history, investigated how he'd been created and acculturated by patriarchy or toxic masculinity. I have never heard one in 16,000 years of patriarchy. (laughs) So part of me went, well, what would that look like? You know, what would it feel like? And hopefully this book is a kind of blueprint for what men might want to enter into as a process of transforming the suffering they have inflicted on people into release and into helping their victims or offering their victims a way out of pain.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of, you know, public apologies, which should probably be put in Quotes, you know. Yeah, I think li- big quotes <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, lately, and in invariably, I immediately I see the apology, and first of all, often my first thought is, "Oh, come on," because typically it's a PR exercise, and mm-hmm. then immediately, and that's a good thing. We get the backlash of opinion pieces that are saying this isn't really an apology, mm-hmm. you know.
1: I think Anita Hill was the perfect example. You know, Joe Biden came out, and it was like (laughs) one of those. Well, I'm sorry, this hurt you. You know what I mean? It was, it was was right, right. and, And she was like, no, no, you don't understand. There's accountability. You didn't just hurt me, delegitimize me, humiliate me, and make me the victim. Feel embarrass me on every front, but you actually did this to millions of women in America. You you changed and defaced what harassment really is. And you put in Clarence Timeless on the Supreme Court for a long, long time making decisions about women's bodies and about women at the workplace, etc. There's huge accountability there. And you've got to go look one of the things I learned in this book, like what is an apology? Right.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's important. I think it's
1: really critical. I think it's a humbling I think it's becoming vulnerable. I think it's an equalizer. I think it's a step-by-step detailed accounting of what you did, because I believe the liberation is in the details. Sure. It's feeling what your victim felt, opening your heart to what your deeds did and how they impacted not only her life, but all the people around her. It's then looking at your own history and going, what happened to me that made me a kind of man that could bring me here? What in my childhood, what in the culture, what in the, in the story of the world has made me this kind of man? And then it's indicating that you have done enough self-reflection and work on yourself that it's very clear you wouldn't possibly do this again. Right, right, right. right. And that's a journey. That's a practice. We teach prayer right we teach children how to pray we teach about devotion we teach about the humility of the petition but we don't we don't teach apology
0: in the case of your father the crime is so extreme it's so ongoing it's so pervasive and pernicious and just horrible on so many levels that a couple of things i mean one at least as you represent him in the book as you're trying to understand him or or speak through him there's a level of self-delusion that is almost equal in force to the intensity of the of the wrong that he did. So that the violence in your later childhood, the emotional violence, mm-hmm. like coming to hear you speak at your valedictorian speech, and then giving you a thousand bucks or something and saying, have a nice life. Yeah.
1: This- I'm never mentioning the speech. Never saying yeah, right, a word right, about right, right, right. You're
0: cheer, You know, I'm 22 ovation. years old
1: in front of thousands of people. Yeah. He lights my cigarette and hands me a check and says, have a nice life. Yeah.
0: I mean, he's obviously damaged as hell to begin with. But then what that must have done on top of that, there's no way you end up at a proper apology the way you're describing unless you get thrown in a prison for... Mm-hmm. 20 years or so. Well, some, I don't think know. prison
1: does it unfortunately. Because, Maybe, I'm Because, saying, you, you know, know prisons don't do anything about changing people's consciousness. They just punish people. We need places where people can go to have that kind of hmm. w- work and process of what is restorative justice? Right. How do we change our souls? How do, what What are the tools that people need to look at what brought them to the kind of behavior they did? And, and fortunately prisons are not those places.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm certainly no fan of prisons yeah. i guess i was thinking that you know sometimes people come to a moment of deep self insight when they're locked yes. you know not, not that that's what prison yes. is designed to do occasionally maybe <laughs> but i think usually
1: they just get abused and right. get
0: further messed up become yeah. worse yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Your career has been really interesting. So, I mean, before I even had any idea what the con- what year did the Vagina Monologues come
1: 1994.
0: out? Nineteen ninety four. Ninety four. So I'm yep. in college in NYU, and like before I had ever seen it, right? And this is everyone's experience that heard about it, right? The crucial thing is that it's called the Vagina Monologue. Even just in the title, there's a point there. You're saying something that people don't don't want to say, and I think there's a queer through line. You're looking at, you're trying to talk about something that people are reluctant for whatever reason to talk about, bring it out in the public. And in, in those monologues, you're also doing it for other people. And I wonder how you go from there to here.
1: Well, it's interesting because I, th- I think, you know, I'm working with the producer of the Vagina Monologues, and we're talking about turning this into a theater piece, The Apology. And I said to him, I really feel like it began, whatever this is, began with the apology and it kind of, this is the closure to it, you Mm. know? And I think for me, what's always been most interesting to me, probably because I grew up in an environment where, you know, I lived in an upper middle class community with with literally a white picket fence around my house. (laughs) And everyone was telling me every day how grateful I should be for this beautiful family because my father was incredibly handsome. My mother was beautiful and they were utterly charming. And yet inside was a nightmare. And I think my quest in life is to tell the truth. Right. It's, it's to match the inside and the outside. It's to say what's really going on and why. I Look, I think about sex. And I think about sex education. And I think about the terror in this country to talk about sex, right? Right. And address sex and tell our children about sex and tell our children how beautiful sex is. And what a great, is it the best part of your life for God's (laughs) sakes? I mean, is there anything, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's why we live because it's our life force expressing itself and our desire to connect and love and feel and wrestle. And instead we make children feel guilty and bad. If they touch themselves, they get banished and they're told they're sinful or they're wrong. As opposed to saying, wow, you have this beautiful body. You have, you have a life force pulsing through you and let's talk about it. Right. If someone touches you inappropriately, that's not good. You come to me. Right. If somebody, Instead, we ill-prepare them. We leave them highly unprotected. So they go out into the world, whether it's the church, whether it's the gym and it's girls and boys, and horrible things get done to them. And they have no capacity and no language and no pathway to talk about this with people who could and should be protecting them. And I think for me, the vagina monologues was just saying, we need to talk about it. You know, this is a play called the vagina monologues and when you and when you c- come to this play, you are making a choice to come to the to a play called the vagina monologues. I used to joke and say, What was I gonna call it? The pocketbook monologues and then people would get in the theater and I'd be like, Gotcha you know. Like it was a conscious political choice sure. to come to see that, you know. And
0: there's a there's a funny moment in the um I guess is it Joe Mantello directed the HBO? version of that which is sort of like a documentary but also contains mm-hmm. the monologues uh, where you're talking about this one punk ticket taker that was like if you can't say the name of the show you, you can't, can't get in. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which probably a lot of people were like I'm so yeah, yeah. I would like two tickets mm-hmm. well
1: apparently the men used to call and say I want a ticket to the vagina dialogues <laughs> and women would call and say I want a ticket to the monologues okay. it was, yeah so it was, it was the it,
0: men were just getting it wrong or they were trying to somehow uh, pardon the they somehow part got in the phrase insert themselves I, into I the don't know it was, it was kind of <laughs> insane <laughs> um, so that work then led to V-Day which maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about it because it's taken you all over the world it sounds like it's It's become a very significant part of your life. Yes, V-Day
1: is a global movement to end violence against women and girls. And I think what we realized from the very beginning, because when I started to perform the show, women would literally line up afterwards to tell me their stories. It was Mm. just, uh, it was catalyzing so many memories, so many issues that women had never talked about before. So. In 1998, we did the first V-Day, wishes. we got all these fabulous actors together from Glenn Close to Whoopi Goldberg. And we did the first big performance at the Hammerstein and 2,500 people came. And that night, I think we all realized we had birthed something. So for 21 years now, that movement is a movement where colleges, hundreds and hundreds of colleges and community groups put on the play every year in the community. And they raise, I think we've raised a hundred million dollars at this point that goes to local groups, all local groups for their shelters and hotlines and and to really support women in those communities. Then we launched One Billion Rise in seven years ago, which is a huge, huge global movement, a dance artistic movement in 200 countries. So yes, I have been Probably to seventy countries in the last twenty years and heard stories from women everywhere.
0: It's incredible. And do you is the text set in set in stone or new stories filter into it? Over
1: the years, I wrote um, spotlight monologues because every year we highlight uh, different women around the world, whether it's, you know, the comfort women, who were taken by the Japanese in World War Two, and and by the way, are still waiting 70 years later for their apology. I, my friend was just with them in, in Manila last week, and they all had the book, and we're holding it up, going, we're waiting for our apology, or whether it's Afghanistan. Or, and so I've written monologues that relate to those basic spotlights each year.
0: To clarify for the listeners, the comfort women, they were abducted as and forced into sexual slavery by Japanese soldiers. During, during World War II. World they War were II taken from
1: all over Asia in their teens and early 20s, and some of them were raped up to 50 times a day in those camps.
0: Yeah, and there's been no no formal no. apology Nothing approaching it.
1: And so this is a perfect example. Those women have literally been doing vigils every Thursday in all those countries for 70 years. And most of them have died. Many of them are now feeble and not really conscious. The few of them that remain... All they want is an apology. They want the government, of the Japanese government to say, this happened, we did this, this is real, we get the impact of you and on your
0: families. Right.
1: We get how this is destroyed and taken and, and absorbed your entire lives, struggling to find a way out of this morass.
0: I want to go back to that thing you said about being near the river and going into the river because, you know... I definitely grew up with a kind of culture of silence around sexuality. Like for sure, that was the norm. And in in my household, we were not like Puritans by background, but maybe by culture to yes, some extent. Yeah. And, um, and you always thought of that the way they think about money in England, that it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's just about politeness. Like we just that's private. But I I think about the ways that like at some point, I mean, not only does silence deprive you of dialogue and connection to your own sexuality, to that of others, but it also becomes a form of violence ultimately.
1: Totally. Totally. You know, I was thinking yesterday that The Guardian came out and they're no longer calling climate change, climate change. They're calling it climate emergency or climate crisis. But that's radical because language Language changes everything. It's like saying the word vagina. If you can't say it, you can't see it. If you can't see it, you can't talk about it. If you can't talk about it, a lot can happen to it in the dark without your permission. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same thing about silence. When we we, we tell ourselves this private thing, usually private means owned by white men, to be honest with Mm -hmm, you. It's mm -hmm. under the auspices of white men. They have power over that. It's their domain. They have determined this to be private right? Um, I mean, you look at so many of the scandals that occurred like Harvey Weinstein or Cosby and the numbers of women that were violated and then the pervasive silence of the enablers around those people because they were in those powerful men kingdoms, right? And I think part of what equalizing does and part of what helps bring people into their power is breaking that silence because you break their grip on that power
0: and what makes it so kind of complicated and fucked up is that on the one hand it is mostly i think as you say about white white men and the colonizing of spaces right but then it also becomes bound up with shame Mm -hmm. um you know and like i'm thinking about the Catholic church. My my mother was Catholic. And so silence around sexuality, I mean, and there's no doubt that the Catholic church is part of the history of the the white patriarchy, but there it was about this mind-body separate, spirit-body separation, and this idea that there's a purity that's somehow above sexuality and that, and shame, just shame. It's all about shame. And, And
1: we go back to the garden, right? We go back to the garden. The whole idea that we feel shame around sexuality. It's the way we see the earth, right? The earth is somehow against us as opposed to us being the same and one with the earth. Our sexuality is our life force. It's the thing pulsing through us that that drives us to create and make and love and connect. and, 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 And yet, We've put this layer of shame on top of it, which is killing off our basic intuition, killing off our greatest gifts. And I think the more we separate from our sexuality, the more perverse, the more distorted. And I think in the case of men, the more they are separated from their tenderness their vulnerability, their hearts, their tears, their their questions, the more violent they become. Because I look at my own father, and I know my father was adored. And adoration is is an incredibly perverse way of treating people. First of all, you're not allowed to be human. You're not allowed to have any kind of feelings or express any kind of feelings that show vulnerability or your humanity or doubt or question you have to you it's performative right it's completely conditional i will love you if you do this it's not i love the messy complex person that you are and i'm with you no matter what it's i love you i adore you if you are this adored object right right right,
0: right. you're an and I- so what I- you, ideal not a human exactly human. and yeah.
1: so what do you do with all those complicated feelings uh, or all the feelings you push them under and eventually they metastasized into something really really dangerous and and in my father's case what he called the shadow man like it surfaced when he came front to front with tenderness mm. an overwhelming tenderness that he had no capacity to sit with feel be in awe of surrender to he had to hurt it stop it you know attack it rape it you know, violated.
0: Which is his his feelings for you as his daughter.
1: Yeah, because he didn't, mm-hmm. no one ever taught him how to have those feelings, right? And I'm not justifying it, but I see so many men who in the face of tenderness, they don't know how to process it because no one's allowed them to feel tender to themselves, first of all, Yeah, or to to live with tenderness, you know?
0: I don't know if this is like above our pay grade here, but in the context of what we're talking about, about like, men colonizing spaces and about the repression of sexuality. I mean, you're talking about a version of masculinity that persists to a great extent today, but was definitely definitive of your father's generation, this like strong, silent... Dominating. Yeah. Where does that all fit in for you to this picture that that we've been painting about sexual repression, about spaces colonized by white men? Like why were men taught to be like that, do you think?
1: I think patriarchy is a system that's been here for what, 16,000 years. and. Why it came to be? There are all kinds of th- theories. Whether it was the, the, the birth of agriculture, but I think it's so interesting because whose sexuality gets repressed in this culture? I'm looking at all the. Uh, for example, I'm going to the abortion rally this afternoon. You know, the, the stop the bans ab- abortion rally this afternoon. And I was thinking this morning, like, okay, how many ways can men attempt to control women's bodies? Mm. Okay. First of all, they're going to tell us when we can have babies and when we cannot, how we have to be at what stage of the pre- down to down to like you, you will have them when you're incested and you will have them when you're raped. OK, then we have violence, which is here all the time around us, the threat of possible rape, harassment, incest, you name it. It's all around threatening our bodies, our bodies. I really believe female sexuality is the greatest threat on the planet. I do. I think so much of what is happening here, I mean, right. it, it is about the suppression of that. And and that's because when it is allowed and invited, when it is in its full, the world will change. We will be living in a kind of equality. We'll be living in a free-flowing I don't know. Um, I can only describe it energetically. Patriarchy is here so that the father rules, yeah, yeah. so that the father dominates, so the father has all the power and all that. But, And I think the greatest threat to that in many ways is women's voices and their sexuality and their independence and their autonomy. I think it's why the pushback is so great right now, to be honest with you. Because women are coming into all that.
0: Yes, that's right. And nobody, as you know, we know that it's a fact of human nature that nobody, you know, male or otherwise, likes to give up power. Power is just, that's how power works. People don't like to give it up. But what I'm thinking about while you're talking is that, you know, you know, for everything that men have historically, quote unquote, gotten out of this arrangement, right, this repression and this power and this patriarchy The violence that is done certainly to women, but also to them, to their personalities, Mm -hmm. to their souls, you know, our souls, you know, to have the, quote unquote, freedom of your own sexuality, but your sexuality unconnected to your emotional life in some fundamental way. Exactly. I, I, I think that, I think everyone profoundly suffers.
1: Look, patriarchy is a tyranny to all of us. And in some ways, it's more harsh to men because it separates them from themselves and their hearts. Do you know? And also, you know, it it seems to me that who wants to live a life without being able to be open to tenderness and vulnerability? I, I, I once heard this, I was in um, Kenya and a woman there was working to stop the practice of female genital mutilation. And she was teaching a class of boys, what would happen to girls who they would then marry that they would have their clitorises cut off, that they would be sewn up with thorns, that they would never experience pleasure. And one of the boys raised his hand and said, why would we want that? Why would we want our wife not to experience pleasure? How could we have pleasure if she wasn't having pleasure? And it was so simple, but it was kind of the story of patriarchy like, you know, revealed in that moment. Like, how do you live in a world where you have been so removed from yourself and so cut off from yourself through the acculturation process right. that you could be having sex with a woman who is screaming, stop, 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 I don't want it. And you are so separated from your heart and your and your feelings and yourself that you continue on. Is that how men want to be? I don't believe so.
0: And the real tragedy, I mean, this is this is culture. You know, you internalize that. That's the self you internalized as your own. You were never given a choice, you know, that you never knew what was being done. I mean, not that you... No, exactly. You're it left happen- with the responsibility to do something about it, but...
1: Yeah, it happened to you. And it you, happened you, to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the other day, I got this in, uh, Instagram from a beautiful man who said... I just love what you're saying about tenderness and how your father, because he couldn't experience tenderness towards himself, he had to kill all the tenderness around him. And he said, I want to begin to feel tender towards myself so I can be a better man. And I thought, wow, that's what we have to wake up to. And, and I really think we're at a turning point in humanity. I think with everything going on with the earth, with everything going on in our every direction Men have really got to make a choice now, whether they're going to maintain allegiance to the male code.
0: Right, right. Right.
1: Because my father says in the book to become an apologist is to be a traitor to men. Are men going to maintain an allegiance to the male, the legion of men, or are they going to step into the next paradigm, which is freeing, first of all... um, stopping the violence, stopping the oppression, stopping the domination, stopping and and opening their
0: hearts so they get to be free in this lifetime. Part of what the real challenge here is, is that men have to choose to step into that river, but they also have to be given permission to do that with compassion for what they've suffered, even if they've caused suffering to others. And that is very hard, especially in the context of all the women in the world processing the trauma of what's been done to them by men and the necessary angry you know, ways that that needs to express itself as well, men also somehow need to find some way back into themselves that isn't simply about a pro-forma apology and, you know, self-flagellation that's supposed to please somebody else.
1: I, I, and by the way, I don't think that... Which it, is not what you're... I'm and not by, saying, no, by the way, I don't, I don't think that's change anyway. I think that's just performance. I mean, one of the things I hope with this book is that it will begin to open pathways right. where men can work with each other in groups, work with clergy, work with therapists, work with friends, and begin to start to say... Okay, what have I done in this world that I'm not happy about? Because I truly believe there's no deed you do that is unkind or cruel or violent that you are not plagued by on some level, whether you're conscious of it or not. So how do we begin to create pathways for men to come forward and with each other, with women, with clergy, with groups to start to talk about, I did this. I need to look at, why did I do this? What are the reasons I did this? How do we go back and and feel that there's actually going to be another side once you, you know, there's going to be a place you go to on the Uh, other side. Right.
0: How do I move through this into if masculinity is a part of your identity? How do I move through this shedding of toxic masculinity into a different form of masculinity? So let me ask you something. Yes, please.
1: What do you think will catalyze that willingness in men? What do you think needs to happen for men to be willing to begin to engage in this uprooting of this old paradigm?
0: I can only speak, I think, for myself. And I can say that the desire to be a better person, to be more emotionally connected, you know, to see yourself and the consequences of your own actions, for me anyway, that emerges out of suffering. I mean, that comes out of getting sick of the poison of that you've been fed or seeing the consequences of your actions on others i don't i don't know how you engineer that on a societal scale although i i i do believe that the kind of work that you're doing and that what's happening broadly just culturally does is as you say opening opening those conversations opening insight you know for people women and men alike into into what's actually going on mm. I mm-hmm. don't know, you know, how satisfying an answer. No, that is, that's but... a good
1: answer. I mean, I think, I think suffering is one of the pathways. I think somebody said to me the other day. I think a, a journalist in London said to me. I think everyone should send this book anonymously to their perpetrator. And I thought, wow, that's a great idea. And then I thought to myself, they won't read it. Well, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what <laughs> okay, people will okay, secretly okay, do. But th- okay. I think the the, the ten million dollar question is, what is going to catalyze those with power? to understand that that power is going to bring us to extinction Mm. if there is no transformation. And are those who have the most power going to take down this whole, all of humanity in clinging
0: to that? Uh, So I would say two things to that. One, one is we don't, we don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. you, we, right. we, 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 you know, right. there's a snowball effect. We know mm-hmm. things are out of control with the the planet. You know, mm. we, uh, we, we don't know the time, time scale. A couple weeks ago, I spoke with Adam Gopnik, who's writing about sort of classical liberalism and the fact that like even when there's great passion in sort of like a democratic humanist society, even when there's like radical, strong, powerful feelings, progress happens incrementally. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so that, you know, the the snowball effect of things like the Mm -hmm. vagina monologues, conversations all over the world, the Me Too movement, you know, that, that consciousness, if... I can't say whether it's soon enough.
1: Mm, that's the problem. It's got to be that, soon
0: <laughs> it may be the problem, yeah. but it may be our only yeah, it, yeah it may, we may not have another option, yeah, I know. You know I know that you change the minds of the the people, you know,
1: but I well. also remember what Castro said, and I have it on over my desk that you only need ten percent of the people to have a revolution. And sometimes I dream, and I have this dream that there will be a cadre of men who really begin to be able and willing and desirous of relinquishing the ties and beginning to forge a path. And I think once that begins to happen, a lot more men will begin to follow. But, I do.
0: But that too yeah. it, that too is, is a, a snowball yeah. effect, unless you're talking about a proper revolution where we're putting the unrepentant men on the chopping block. And that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to see that world, no. but, you know, I have a vested... Uh, cultural interest in the, in, in being.
1: I'm going know. for option two for now, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> for now being the operative <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, 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 no, I, I think, look, I think we all just keep chipping away at this, right? I mean, this is my current offering and I will go back and find the next offering and, right. you know, how do we come at it from this angle and how do we come at it from this angle? And I think one of the encouraging things since the book has been out and it's only been a few days is how many letters I'm getting from men. Mm. And and that really is, it's eye opener. I'm just amazed to see how many men really want a pathway and are looking for a pathway. And so I think we just keep plowing at it, you know, until we...
0: And this is the hardest part. And I keep coming back to this, which is that I think the vast majority of even sort of decent men, if they feel threatened the amygdala is going to kick in and they're going to dig their heels in. If somehow there's a way, you know, a conversation that's about opening space, it becomes different. And and that's not a burden that should be on women. It's Mm -hmm. not fair. It's not right. But I just, I keep coming back to that. I mean, like, you know, there are obviously unrepentant sons of bitches out there. That's one thing. But I'm talking about like the average guy that's like wait a minute i'm not all these things you know or whatever like like before the insight can even begin Mm -hmm. the reflex you know
1: but part of maybe what we need to look at is um I mean, we've been doing so much women for men all these years. And even in the violence against women it's movement. It's not on
0: women, yeah. yeah it's, you know what I
1: mean? Like, I've always wondered, like, why did this movement to end violence against women become a woman's movement? Right. Turns out we don't rape ourselves, right? <laughs> and, and meanwhile, we are out there you know, building the shelters, women are leaving their homes Mm -hmm. when they're being beaten as opposed to men leaving their homes because women can't get orders of protection, right? Like so much of the onus has been on us. And I guess there's part of me that wants to say to men, it's now the time for you to make a leap in spite of the uncomfortability, Sure. in spite of the fact that you may get, and I don't know how to express it any better than like it's the time yeah. it's, it's now the moment
0: yeah yeah you and, the, and you're and, and understanding that you're gonna face you may well face some real rage you know you may well you you may be misunderstood you someone might not want you there at some moment
1: exactly Things well it's gonna- kind of like doing anti-racist work yeah right you know if you go into the fray as a white person there are going to be a lot of black people who are pissed off at you, and rightly so. Yeah, And so part of it is you don't run away from that. You stay in it because you realize there is... 400 years of slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, lynchings that, that is tied back there, that your ancestral legacy as a white person is connected to. And you stay in the fight and you bear the rage and you bear the suffering and you bear and you become resilient and not fragile. And I think part of what men are, men need to, toughen up in a way around this you know, <laughs> right, right. And, and be like okay I can handle that rage and I can handle that betrayal and I can handle that sorrow and I'm going to hang in here and keep going because that's the legacies we're carrying and being responsible to those legacies and I guess I think that's what I would dream that men would be like yeah I get it and I'm not going to die from it I'm not going to die right. from someone's rage I'm not going to die from being called out I'm not going to fall apart I'm going to find a way to go inside and do the work I need to do to transform to be a different kind of man
0: yeah because like standing there in the face of that and then continuing to move forward is the least the least you can do Mm -hmm. in the wake of all that yeah hello yeah
1: hello Look what we've had to do, (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I don't want to make it like tit for tat, but I think there's a level on which when you start to recognize what, what women have been through, how oppressed women have been, how controlled women have been, how denied rightful standing and rightful recognition and equal recognition and equal pay. And I mean, come on, you've had the, you've, you've owned the world. Like it's time to like say, okay, let me hung, hang back for a second and see how I could actually serve this or see how I could
0: that's listen, right. you know? That's right. That's the moral right. I mean, we, we want to look at human nature and we want to say, here's why this thing happens, you know? But that's a separate thing from, from the moral responsibility. The moral responsibility is okay, we get defensive. What should we do and what shall we do? In spite of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Exactly. That's yeah. the question. And and how do we feel? I mean, I think really if you open your heart to what it feels like for a person to be raped, for a person to be taken against their will, for a person to be invaded, for a person to be ripped apart. If you open yourself to feel that, your actions will be, will be greatly determined by that. But part of it is letting yourself feel that suffering. Do you know, it's like every book I read about slavery, every book I read about reconstruction, every, everything I learn rips my heart apart that white people have done this and bought this on African-Americans. But part of having your heart ripped open is that you become responsible. You get in the fight, you get in the struggle and you realize you have got to make this better. You've got to serve. You've got to, you've got to in some way be part of this struggle. You know,
0: you're also alive you're rather alive. Than, than not, yeah. rather than the opposite. Yeah. yeah, this is as good a place as there as any to take this somewhat random detour of the second <laughs> part of the show, which for the audience is uh, where Eve and I. I mean, we'll we'll end up circling back to some of this, I'm sure. But we watch a surprise video from Big Think's interview archives. It's a conversation starter. Neither Eve nor I has seen it before, and we'll see where we go from here. So this is Jared Diamond, author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, and many other books. And the video is titled, Great Risk for Great Gain. Immigrants and innovators are psychologically the same.
2: Immigration in the United States is a controversial issue, just as it is in most other countries of the world. Uh, Many other, other, not just first world countries, Japan, Australia, Western Europe, are wrestling with immigration, but many developing countries. When I was last in Indonesia, Malaysia, Indonesia's neighbor, is having a problem with Indonesians migrating into Malaysia because the standard of living in Malaysia is higher than in Indonesia. And South Africa, an African country, is having issues with immigration with neighboring poor African countries, such as Zimbabwe, sending immigrants. Um, into South Africa. So immigration in the United States. The fact is, every American without exception is an immigrant. Native Americans immigrated 13,000 years ago, and everybody else has immigrated within the last 400 years. My father immigrated at the age of two in 1904, my mother's parents immigrated around 1890. Most Americans are immigrants. If you look at the contribution of immigrants, if you ask yourself, do a thought experiment. Take the citizens of any country in the world out there. Take the citizens of Poland or Russia and divide them into two sets. Suppose you had a mechanism for dividing every citizen of Poland into either two categories. One category are those people who are healthy. Ambitious, willing to take risks, willing to try new ways, young, strong. And the other category consists of those people who are weak, unwilling to take risks, unwilling to experiment, wanting to carry on in their old ways. In effect, dividing a country into those two groups is what's accomplished by the decision to emigrate. The decision to emigrate is made by people who are healthy, strong, willing to undertake risks and to face the unknown, and those who don't emigrate lack, on the average, lack those qualities. But being willing to take risks and experiment. Those are essential qualities for innovating. And the United States is a country of innovation. It's therefore no surprise that the, the great majority of American Nobel Prize winners are either first generation immigrants or are the children of first-generation immigrants. So immigration has made a strong contribution to the history of the United States. But it's controversial, because whenever you get a batch of people who are there, and then another batch of people coming who are different, the Vietnamese of the 1970s, They are different, and there are likely to be prejudices. There have been prejudices against immigrants throughout American history, beginning with the first non-British immigrants, the Irish and the Germans, and eventually that settled down. Then the prejudice against the Eastern Europe, the Japanese and China, Eastern Europeans in the late 1800s, and that, then the prejudice against the Vietnamese. So it's unsurprising that immigration is an issue in the United States today, but reflect on our history. Students of immigration say that the United States has benefited more from immigration than any other country in the world, and that for the United States, a higher percentage of our immigrants are highly trained, skilled people who contribute to our economy than the immigrants into any other country in the world. So yes, it's a problem for us, but we are better off than any other country with that problem.
1: Well, so interesting because um, last month I was down at the border in Brownsville, Texas, And um, I was talking, I I was in all kinds of situations, a Walmart where 1,500 undocumented boys were, a former Walmart where 1,400 undocumented boys were being held at the border. And what I was struck by with everybody I met was everybody was fleeing someplace really terrible, um, where terrible things were happening to them. And yet they had this determination that they could walk thousands of miles, they could walk through heat and dehydration Mm -hmm. and snakes and obstacles to get to another place to create something better. And I was struck by how powerful all those people were. And I was thinking to myself, why wouldn't we want all of these people <laughs> right, in this right. country? These are the people who are going to make and remake and div- and, and and create brand, and exactly what he was talking about. Right. These are not only the inventors. These are, these are the people with life force. These are the people with determination. These are the people who are fighting for their families and will go to any lengths yeah. to protect people. I want that person as my neighbor. Sure, right? sure, sure. <laughs> I want sure. that person as my friend, you know?
0: I was thinking about this in the context of your, your life story as well. And that, you know, I, I was thinking about this while I was reading the book. I was like, okay, Eve is incredibly strong, incredibly, like, creative. She did anything anyone could possibly, you know, we could ever expect of anyone to, to move through this situation and build a life. Um, and more. And then I was also thinking, you know, nobody deserves to go through what you went through. And what about the people, you know, we, we, we do celebrate these stories, and rightfully so, of the people who can, who have the strength or the life force, as you say, you know, but no, nobody should have to go through Absolutely. that. And the people, what about the people who don't, who don't have that? You know, the, the world has the responsibility to protect Absolutely. those people too, right?
1: And, And the thing is, why are we now in a position where we're choosing this whole thing about there's certain people who belong in America versus other people who don't belong in America? Everybody like this country was founded on this notion like we are all nomads here we've all come from somewhere yeah. and we're all nomadically traveling across this country all the time we are a country of 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 people who are traveling right? Mm, right the world is is becoming progressively a world of people in movement and rather than putting up walls and defining boundaries it seems to me this is the time to begin to think how do we move together in movement, right? Right, right? How do we, rather than seeing people as refugees, immigrants, undocumented, and creating all of these names and words to define people as outsiders, right. how do we start building a world where we are welcoming and inviting and creating more and more ways of connecting to others, you know? And I think what you, what you just said about who are the people who what about the people who don't have the wherewithal, who don't have a, a certain system that can fight back? Right. Why aren't those the people we're most reaching out to, to offer solidarity, to offer strength, to say, let me help build you up. Let me, Because we all know very well that it only takes one or two people in a person's life reaching out and believing in them or supporting them or giving them a hand or giving them to change somebody's whole trajectory. right? It it, it doesn't require 30 million people. It requires one or two solid people. And it seems to me if this were the country I wanted to live in, this would be a place when we see mothers who are coming over their borders with children who have just fled horribly violent situations, we would be like, what can we do? What can we do? How do we make this better for you? How do we? How do we welcome you?
0: And indeed, I would think that it's those people, you know, in some ways, the the ones with that that creativity, that willingness to take risks, that life force, if you want to call it that, that maybe have the greatest potential power to protect the ones that are in need of protection. Like, so that I
1: think people forget that they're immigrants. You know, the other day I was having a conversation right. with a woman, a woman who was Jewish from the Ukraine who had migrated here and, and was welcomed here, and she was telling me how she was for Trump, and I started laughing. <laughs> and I said, explain to me how you, as a person who came to this country and were welcomed, can support someone who is not welcoming immigrants. And just explain that to me because I don't get
0: that. And what would she say?
1: She stopped in her tracks. She said, how am I
0: doing that? Hmm. And we
1: had like a half hour conversation. And by the end, she said, I could never vote for Trump. But it's like, you know, wow. th- th- there was <laughs> this amazing book called Crowds by Kinetti, Yeah, And he has this beautiful description, a person sitting on a train car. They're by themselves. They own the train car. The train stops and a person gets on and they're like, "Oh, I don't want you on my train car. This was my train (laughs) car." But within an hour, they bond and they both now own the train car. Right. The train stops again and the third person gets on and now it's their train car. And it seems to be how human beings are. That's right. Like, like we 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 kind of become we we own the thing before we even know we're owning it and we become rather than going, "No, no, actually, I am here by the, the welcome and the grace and 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 the invitation of people." And now. I get to do that for somebody else. And, and
0: and the other lesson of that story is that when we are changed, when we are moved to allow others into the circle, it's often face-to-face. It's often one-on-one. The next one that gets on the car, all those people out there, we don't want them, right, but exactly. this, this one's all right. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you could know, stay. All
1: right, now we'll let you into the car. And, 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 and,
0: and, and we, you know, which I think really connects with, you know, putting a book like this out into the world, you're hearing a voice speaking directly to you about something that you may not know about putting these monologues as you've done out into the world hearing voices talking about very specific exactly. things that you haven't thought about before that that one to one you know connection which Again, like maybe it doesn't operate at the speed and the scale that we sometimes want things to go, but is extremely, extremely Well, powerful. that's the
1: value of storytelling, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The specificity of storytelling. And and one of the things I, every time I travel and I go and I listen, everything changes when I went to the border. And look, I was horrified by what is happening at the borders. and But to sit and listen to people at the border and to hear what's going on there and to see the really the diabolical mechanisms that are, are are operating in the name of this country, whether they're caging children or, or warehousing children at Walmarts or refusing you know, picking five people a day to come over the border while people are waiting there in the heat. Like
0: at some abstracted distance exactly, from the people who are making these decisions. Exactly.
1: But when you sit with the people and you touch the people and you feel the people and you're with the people, suddenly it all changes. And and part of what we have to do is get off these technological devices. And get in the flesh with people and get and hear people and know people and see what it, pe- people's experiences are because everything changes when you do that. And, and, and I think if anything, I wrote this book to say gender violence, that this broad kind of, um, you know, non-specific phrase, here is what it is. Right. Here are the specifics of it. This is what it does. This is what it tastes like. This is what it feels like. This is, let it enter you. And then ask yourself, do you want to be part of a culture that is repeating this over and over and over again? Is that what you want? To, or do you want to be part of what is moving it in another
0: direction? That's right. Because I often <laughs> think about the fact that like, as powerful as language is and as necessary as, as it is to name things, right? White supremacy, white privilege, fragility, whatever... Those words often become a smokescreen there. They can very easily become another veil that we hide behind.
1: Exactly. And I think what I've learned traveling over these 70 years is when you sit in a, a refugee camp in Afghanistan and you're holding hands of women who have fled rape and torture by policies imposed on them by the United States government, our policies are very different Uh, and you see the impact of those policies, you awaken, there's an awakening. And you don't have to travel to Afghanistan. You just have to look at the person sitting next to you and open your heart to them because there's nobody in this culture who hasn't experienced first or secondary trauma. You know, we are a traumatized country. We're a traumatized country in every direction. And if I were running things, I would start a national trauma fund and take most of the military budget, and redirected towards a framework and towards a system where we are working on how we rid ourselves of ancestral trauma, racial trauma, the trauma we've invoked on the indigenous, and gender trauma. Because actually, that's where our future lies. That's where our future lies. It doesn't lie with bombs. It doesn't lie, you know, being the great imperialist power of the world. Our future isn't there.
0: Eve Ensler, I, I have to let you go, but thank you so much for your book, The Apology, and thank you for, for this wonderful, powerful conversation. Thank you You've left me and the listeners with a, a lot to think about.
1: Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for the opportunity this podcast gives me to enter into difficult and important conversations and to share them with you. I'm always aware that painful and personal territory brings up strong feelings in people, and I do my best to respect that while still having honest and vulnerable conversations. It's a little scary and I'm sure there are missteps, but the alternative is silence or pretend understanding. And I think real understanding has to be earned the hard way. I'll be back next week with something quite different and I hope you can join me.